Hi, I'm Paul Johnson. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Life Support. I, I had a vision that I would be the one to break the cycle of uh, gangs and, and, and just craziness in my family. And I started talking to my family about it because, you know, I'd become a pastor. And in my family, we listen to pastors if, if you can get them in the church. Those are the words of former gang leader and drug dealer John Turnipseed, whose ministry was at ground zero of the recent riots in Minneapolis. This is Life Support. Everything you do from then on is different. One of the detectives, I think his name was He was Derek. a golden boy. And all we can do right now is come Extreme together. Extreme domestic violence, multiple rapes. Welcome to Life Support. Hosted by Pastor Paul Johnson from Ridgewood Church in Minnetonka, Minnesota, a trauma survivor himself. My name is Steve Johnson, director of Five Stone Media, a co-sponsor of this program, and our goal is to use story to bring hope and healing. And now let's join part two of our conversation between John Turnipseed and Pastor Paul. Hey, so glad to have you on Life Support. This is a program where we delve into topics that sometimes are difficult, like suffering and and trauma. But we talk about how God enters into those situations and how redemption can happen through Jesus Christ. And we want you to find a deeper relationship with Jesus. And so we've got a really special guest this time, and his name is John Turnipseed. He's the Executive Vice President of Urban Ventures. And uh, John, thank you so much for being here. It's so good to see you, mm-hmm. and thank I'm you. glad that you've dropped by, and you have an amazing story. You were here last time as well, and we talked a little bit about your life and, and how you, through a s- series of events, um, I guess for lack of a better term, were a leader of a, a gang in, in Minneapolis, and uh, you controlled a good part of Minneapolis and a part that we've talked about a lot in the last few weeks and since the George Floyd incident. So maybe we can start there and and tell me a little bit, John, about how you ended up being the head of a gang, because that's not the way your life started mm-hmm. at all. Well, first, I'd like you know to say that it's sort of hard to put this in content. Um, my family started and ran the largest gang, and I'm the head of the family, you know, mm-hmm. um, I never was a rolling 30s blood, but I was like, what, what would you call a consultant and stuff? <laughs> right, I mean, right. in, in a, and a lawyer. So you were like the patriarch yes. over the thing. Yes, right, over the you. thing. My son right. mm-hmm. and my little cousins and my little brothers, you know, they are the ones that, you know, did all the the craziness and stuff. Yeah, I participated. Yeah, I there was a pimp and I sold drugs and, you know, um, sort of a role model for for them. But we, as a family... People have to understand that. I don't want to say that I was the only one in the family that had leadership responsibilities because I wasn't. And then I have to be a little careful because there's things called the RICO Act that you have to be a little yeah, shy of. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but I anyway, yeah. Um, you know, just out of desperation that uh, the gang happened. It, it just didn't crop up because we wanted to be evil people. It cropped up because of a need of protection in the inner city. And, um, it, I got to take you back just a little bit in Minnesota history. Um, in 1965, let's say we have a, we had a thriving black community. Everybody went to school. Everybody, you know, there was no achievement gap. Even though our schools were subpar, we still went to school and graduated. Um, there were intact families. 
Um, that's how Martin Luther King was successful because he had families marching with them. We had merchants, you know, we, everything that we needed, we could buy right in our community and stuff. So, and we helped each other out. There was no such thing as homelessness. You know, you took each other in, you, you looked out for each other. And then we fought for the right to shop in white stores. We fought for that right. We fought for the right to give our money to people that didn't want us and stuff. And when we when we sort of won that battle, desegregation, that's when the black stores and merchants died because they couldn't compete. So, you know, now in my community, I don't see a black grocery store. I don't see a black music store. I don't see a black clothing store. I don't, I don't see nothing owned by black people because we stopped spending money with each other. So then the community became the cesspool of unemployed men and unemployed kids and fathers leaving their house so that their kids could be on welfare. See, there was a trick to welfare. The welfare worker would come to your house and interrogate the kids. When's the last time you've seen your father? Let me look uh, and look through everything, shoe boxes and everything. If they found a man's razor, you'd be taken off welfare. So the fathers actually had to not be mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. And father absence being the biggest problem I see in the world today, it's just, it's, it's just horrendous. And so the South Minneapolis, either, you know, you, there's nothing to do. There's no boys club. There's no nothing. And so, you know, you get a bunch of unfathered, unloved guys, and that's how the gang started, mm-hmm. you know. Um, nobody to, to show us something good. Um, pimps and drug dealers, part of our culture. And um, that's what happens, you know, to a very good community. A community that you would feel safe in became one of the craviest communities in the world. And I know that Urban Ventures is working um, on that problem. We'll talk about that in a couple of minutes. But it's not necessarily politically correct to talk about the role of men and the need for men in the family. And you described this dearth of male leadership that had happened in the black community. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell me a little bit more about that because... As we read the Bible, we see these roles that God has laid out um, for our families and, and how men are, are called to step up and be spiritual leaders and so forth. And you're talking about it even at a more basic level, just being in the home and how the system turned where the men couldn't even be in the home. Mm-hmm. So what effect did that have on these families when the male was gone? Well, even in, in that situation when the male was gone, we still had a few families that had their father there, and they were doing much better than us. Everybody's seen that they owned their own house. We, you know, the people, 80% of the households in my neighborhood didn't have a father in the house. Nobody owned the house except married Christian couples, actually, hmm. you know. Um, and I know, you know, a lot of people say, hey, you know, you're just talking about how important a man is. But it is biblical, you know, to me that the man is supposed to be the man of the house. My mother did the greatest job she could have done. But if what if she would have had a wonderful partner to do it with? Man, we would have flourished instead of going down the dark hole that we went in. So um, father absence is the biggest indicator that a kid will be in poverty. Father absence is the biggest indi- uh, indicator that a child will be in prostitution. Father absence is the biggest in- indicator of most of the ills of the world. You know, just you got to look that up. And um, for me, when I was a pimp, I learned not to deal with girls that had strong fathers because fathers, you know, take it real personal about you messing with their daughters. 
Uh, I had a father kick my door in and put a gun to my head and told me if I ever talked to his daughter again, he'd kill me. Well, you know, that sort of let me know that uh, even though the girl still wanted to be with me, I said, no, I'm not going to be with you. I didn't care about her anyways, you know. But just the fact that she had a strong father for the rest of my career in pimping, if you want to call it that, I stayed away from those girls, you know. Um, even uh, I'll give you an example of, of fathers and how the world treats us. When my wife goes to the high school or the grade school to talk about one of my grandkids, if they're having a problem or whatever, the social worker comes out to see her. When I go up there, the principal comes out to see me. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, call it fair, unfair, whatever, but a strong male in the house, if a kid gets into a fight on the playground or if somebody's picking on him, you can't go get your mom. A young boy, right. go get his mother, man, you yeah. will be picked off for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah, but if you true. bring your dad up there, yeah. guess what? The kid, oh, Mr. Turnipseed's here. You know, all my grandkids' uh, friends know me and know that, you know, don't mess with my grandson. Yeah, and I think, you know, many men are, are a little bit intimidated by leading their families and really what is needed is just presence, it's presence in the mm-hmm. home. You know, yes. be there, invest, and, and and kids just need to know, you know, I think that when they see you go to work and come home and see you go to work and come home and it's consistent and there's safety there and there's security there, you don't have to be a perfect person, mm-hmm. you know. And, in fact, if you were, then we'd all be in a lot of trouble because none of us are. But you mentioned that you're you're raising your uh, grandchildren, right? Your grandson. Yes. And you're trying to break that cycle. We're breaking it. Yeah. Tell me about that. You know, um, about 10, 12 years ago, I, I had a vision that I would be the one to break the cycle of uh, gangs and, and, and just craziness in my family. And I started talking to my family about it because, you know, I'd become a pastor and in my family, we listen to pastors, if, if you can get them in the church. And um, they, people started listening to me, you know. And, uh, and all my brothers got out of the gang uh, because of me. Um, a lot of my cousins and nephews left the gang because of me helping them. But you got, I helped them. I helped them see a different life. I, you know, I talked to them because um, our family was a great family in Christ. And we went to the worst family in the, in the state of Minnesota, and we've rebounded from that. We really have. A lot of the lieutenants and, and all that in the family are Christians now. We've got deacons and, and preachers. Wow. we probably got 12, 14 preachers in our family. Is that right? Wow. So God has done an amazing, amazing thing, mm-hmm. you know. And I just wanted to say one more thing about um, the male and how we're treated and why it's important. You go back to, it's biblical, when Jesus was... Um, they were getting ready to stone the woman for having an adulterous relationship. But they were not going to stone the man. Even back in Jesus' time, mm-hmm. they were going to kill a woman, mm-hmm. but it takes two to tangle. And they were not going to. So this world has been unfair to women. And God is somehow giving us whatever it is to be leaders. And we're supposed to protect our family. A good man protects his family, provides for his family. That's how he gets leadership, you know, and shows an example to his sons and daughters how a daughter gets to learn from her father how a woman should be treated by the way he treats his wife. And sons know, learn from a father how to be a man mm-hmm. and not to be an idiot. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's why it's so you know I, I just mm-hmm. say it's so important. Yeah, it's it's really important. And again, you know, biblically, that's the way God uh, designed things to work. And we're not always sure why God had it that way, but that it definitely is a, a wiring that I think that we all have. We'll be back to the conversation with John Turnipseed in just a moment. My name is Steve Johnson, Executive Director of Five Stone Media, and we are so pleased to be a co-sponsor of this program. For more information about our work, log on to www.lifesupportresources.org. And now back to the conversation between John Turnipseed and Pastor Paul. All of this racial unrest, John, that's that's going on right now. And it's, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the match was lit uh, right in your neighborhood, um, unfortunately. And Minneapolis kind of became ground zero for this current upheaval. I look at the black community, and I don't understand it because I'm not a part of it. And so mm-hmm. it's really hard for me to make sense of it, but I want to. I want to hear these stories, and I want to pray, and I want to know how, as a Christian white man that lives in the suburbs, how I can help. Can you describe a little bit about what it's like to live in the inner city of a place like the Lake Street area? Like, what, what different dynamics are going on down there? Okay. Um, well, right now, you know, Urban Ventures has helped that community rebound. You know, property values are up and all that. So we've actually changed that neighborhood. But being in the inner city, I'll take um, North Minneapolis, for example. Um, first off, it's primarily run by slumlords. And that's what a slumlord is is someone that takes advantage of people that can't rent from other people. You know, because uh, for whatever reason, they got an unlawful detainer because they couldn't pay their rent. Well, of course they couldn't pay their rent. They're working check to check, and all of a sudden you miss one check and you can't pay rent. Mm -hmm. And so then the landlord puts you out, you get an unlawful detainer, and you have to live in certain places. And those certain places charge you more than you should pay for rent and won't fix anything. And there's a lot of properties. I've been to a lot of homes with rats and roaches just running around like people. You know, so that's the environment that kids are living in, you know, eating out of the corner food stores, you know, um, because there's no big supermarket around. So they'll go to the corner food store and spend their food stamps. And then in, in the corner store, you can buy anything, you know, and illegal and legal. Right. And things of that nature. So that's part of inner city life, you know, where um, resources and, you know, there's no factories in the inner city. There's there's nothing. There's no work except for you know, um, Wendy's and and McDonald's, which I praise God for them because Mm -hmm. without them, there'd be no work. Mm -hmm. And people are living a a day-to-day existence. So they try to figure out how to make more money. And how to make more money is to get white males down there spending money illegally. I mean, you can't can't raise a, you can't have a successful drug business without white males. They make it up. You know, they're the ones that spend the money. And, um, so it's it's everybody's problem. It affects us all, you know, and uh, we can't just turn our back because now the inner city is moving out to Brooklyn Park, Brooklyn Center, Richfield. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we let the same thing happen, Richfield, we can't keep, you know, the world can't just keep moving away from the inner city. We have to change the inner city because it's all, you know, it's going to harm us all. Mm-hmm. How do gangs interact with all of that? So our... Are gangs, a, in a way, a necessity because there's no other way to get what you need? Or are gangs taking advantage of 
the what you just described or both? Yeah, when you put a bunch of poor people in a place and no money and stuff, people start preying on each other. Um, there's an old saying, the jungle creed says the strong must feed on any prey that is at hand. And uh, that's what happens. And so people start preying on each other because they, if like I lived in the inner city in the rough part of North Minneapolis. And every time I go to work, they try to break in my house because I had things, you know, and I wore suits every day, but I wanted to live in the inner city. And uh, it was almost impossible because they had nothing. And it was like I was flashing in front of them, so they wanted to take what I had. And gangs, if they, if you belong to a gang that protects your sister and little brother, your mother, your house won't get broken into, um, you won't get beat up. Uh, it's sort of a necessity, and uh, especially if you live amongst poverty. Anywhere there's extreme poverty, there's gangs. Anywhere and stuff. And so gangs, um, that's a way of making money. And the reason the community puts up with it is because um, those kids are paying their mother's rent. Those kids are making sure their little brothers and sisters have shoes and, and, and things that they need. They're buying food. You know, I'm not saying that's uh, that it's good, right? but I'm saying mm-hmm. that's what happens. But it's a reality. That's why the community puts and up so with it. So do the politicians then kind of give it a wink and a nod because they know it's a necessity to keep the fabric of the society going? Well, the politicians, they feel... If they don't have to deal with it, let's not deal with it. They don't talk about it until there's a shooting. You know, they don't talk about it until some a white person gets mugged because black people get shot every day and Latinos get shot every day. But you let a white person get shot and then they want to talk about it yeah. and stuff. It becomes political then. And so, mm-hmm. so they stay away from it. You will hardly ever hear a conversation that they start like, I'm going to start an anti-gang coalition or something like that. Um, you'll never hear that until there's trouble. What about the black leaders, the the activists that we see um, fly into town for a funeral, say George Floyd's funeral? We saw, mm-hmm. you know, a couple of celebrity uh, black leaders fly in. Are they helpful at all? They'd be helpful if they showed up for just any and everybody, mm-hmm. you know. I mean. But they go um, where the cameras are kind of, don't they? They go where the cameras are. My mm-hmm. July 5th of this year, my niece was shot and killed, oh, and I'm she sorry. was six months pregnant. Oh. And her baby died also by her boyfriend. Mm. I didn't see nobody. And it was a block and a half away from George Floyd Memorial. I didn't see nobody outside of my family show up for her. And it was in the news. You know, I didn't see this big broadcast about it. So we didn't get Al Sharpton and all that kind of stuff. We we just buried her. Yeah. And um, that's, that's, that was, that's what makes it unfortunate. And, I, you know, I got to say, you know, they bring attention to an issue. Mm-hmm. But then they go away, mm-hmm. and you don't hear from them again. I mean, they come in, they fly in, and that's it. Yeah. What is what is Jesus doing in the midst of all of that? You know, as you describe it, it's it seems grim at times. You mm-hmm. know, that whole and, – and, and earlier we had talked about how the riots had destroyed much of what um, you already had, you know, mm-hmm. the, the jobs and the, the ways of uh, getting food and so forth. What is Jesus doing in the midst of that that you can see happening down there? Well, Jesus, my, my grandmother used to say, Jesus is on the main line. There's an old <laughs> Christian song. Jesus, yeah. yeah, she sung it all the time. And mm-hmm. anytime there was a problem, she'd just say, He's on the main line, just give him a call. <laughs> Jesus is working as, in, in the inner city and in your city, mm-hmm. you know, period. Um, I'll tell you where my hope is at that I see Jesus working with millennials. 
the millennials are not the same animal that grew up 40 years ago. Uh, they think different. You know, they're more socially active. When Black Lives Matter is going on, you see young white millennials being a part of that. I believe that they're, how they're being taught and how they think is totally different, and I think they're going to move the needle for racial justice. I, I really do. You know, I mean, they're not going to do it overnight, but they're teaching their kids. So three generations from now, I believe that racial tensions will be at a minimum because of this new generation that Jesus is raising. Young people are coming back to the church. They're not running away from it, you know, like their hair is on fire and stuff. And because, you know, we're letting young people lead finally. And there, that, that needs to happen. So there's, there's the hope. And I know I've seen mirac miraculous things, you know, Jesus has done through this whole thing. Uh, one donor gave us a million dollars wow. for 800,000, you know, it's close to a million, yeah. to just help 100 businesses. You know, and we help them get their shops back open. I mean, that's that's Jesus doing that. Yeah, yeah. And I also see a change in the church and how, you know, we're 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 slowly moving away. And and I, when I say this, I have nothing against mega churches. Mm -hmm. uh, mega, you know, God calls churches to be every shape and every size. But there seems to be a move a, move away from um, multi-campus churches to neighborhood parishes, mm -hmm. where churches are planting in a neighborhood. And you have people representing that neighborhood making up that church, many who are millennials, younger, mm -hmm. younger pastors. By the way, uh, I'm incredibly encouraged about the future of the church based on young pastors that I meet. Mm -hmm. I mean, they are committed to the cause, and they want nothing to do with this, this uh, sort of pretend religion that has grown in America. They want to mm -hmm. follow Jesus, and they want to be authentic. But I think that that's going to be the future of the church, and I think that'll be good for the inner city because these churches will be there to serve their neighborhoods, mm. and they're not going to be there to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of hope in that. Yes. You know, there's some people that need a mega church. Absolutely. And, and again, I, that's not yeah. at all a slight against that. Yep. But, but in order to reach these neighborhoods that are hard to get to, there's mm -hmm. nothing like a local church that earns the respect of the people around it is is run by people that they know in that neighborhood. Yes. And then then Jesus becomes real because they can see Jesus in the people no, that they're absolutely. interacting with. There used to be a church every other block, you know, and that was a good thing because then from your own community, you know, and where you can go to a church where you actually can be held accountable because the person sitting next to you knows you, lives down the block from you, you know, and some of the worst things in the world are learned at home. And, and 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 I believe that church is a place where, you know, God's people gather to support themselves, just like AA, like-minded people gather. But then you have to behave like a Christian. Yeah. Doesn't matter. You can hear all the, you can, you know, listen to all the gospel music in the world and, and shout and speak in tongues and pour holy water all over your body. But if you're not going to behave like a Christian, it's it's nothing. Yeah, it's, it rings empty for everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, John, what does Urban Ventures do? Urban Ventures, we concentrate on a few things, you know. Right now, it's food and nutrition. Education is our biggest thing that we concentrate on in families. And we do it by sports. We have a music academy. We teach kids music. We um, partner with a high school to make sure that 95% of our kids graduate from high school, and they do, okay? We have one audacious promise and goal that every kid in our 26-block radius will go to college if they graduate from high school, and we'll help them graduate from high school. That's, that's a promise we made to our community. It's on our website. 
and stuff. And how are we going to do it? Well, it's, Jesus is going to have to be on the main line, you know. <laughs> but so far, we've yeah. got 250 on full need, full ride scholarships. So, wow. you know, it's happening. And I, like a, when it's happening. And yeah. we're going to send another 50 this year wow. to college. And so Urban Ventures website is a great place to check that out and find oh, out what's yeah. happening there. And, you know, there's um, it'll happen because there's going to be angels that come along and help those kids just like they helped you, right? That's right. You know, I, I, you know, people ask, how do I use my whiteness to help? Well, you have a privilege, just like I have a male privilege. I use my male privilege to protect my family and to feed my family and, and stand in the gap for my family. Um, I've had uh, white males help me in every aspect of my life. Uh, my books and movies, Five Stone Media did that for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't pay, I, I ain't I had no money to do a book and a movie. They did it yeah. for me, raised it through Christian people. Yeah. You know, um, you know, with a mentor that uh, Art Erickson let me live with him for two years to teach me how to live. Not that I needed it. I had money to live, but I didn't know how to live yeah. as a new Christian. So, you know, that's how people can help. Use the privilege. Don't deny the privilege that you have. Just use it for good, you know. Uh, some people say, you know, that the evil people in the world are the millionaires and the billionaires and stuff. They're killing our community. No, them are the people. I want millionaires because them are the ones that I ask for money. Yeah, you know? that's right. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly that's, right. That's who gives to us. Yeah. I mean, yeah, middle class gives to us, but mm-hmm. the, that's how we got the eight hundred thousand dollars from some Christian millionaires that gave back to their community. You know, so all of us, all of us count. All yeah. of us matter. And so that's Urban Ventures, and the book is called Bloodline. Yes, sir. And, John, I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for stopping by. That's John Turnipseed, and I want to remind you that this is life support, and you can check out a video version of this at fivestonemedia.com, or you can hit our church website here at myrwc.org. So glad to have you here. We'll catch you next time on Life Support. Thanks for listening to this Life Support podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make a gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Life Support, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or your podcast player. And thanks for sharing this audio link with a friend and grow the impact of Life Support.